So the writing really came from really being a shy little kid, trying to find some way to find a world that I could feel more safe and find characters that I could sort of get lost with. And now I get to share all those strange little characters in my head with other people. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. I have this amazing podcast guest today who contacted me through a platform that I subscribe to. And then I started looking at what he does. And you know, sometimes when you start looking at what people do, you think, oh my God, wow. And um, you, you just can't stop looking. And he is one of those people. Richard Vibro or Dick Vibro is a author, but I know that he is a lot more than that. And we are going to find out in this conversation what else he does. And um, I know that he's sitting in uh, New Zealand and I know that he is way ahead of my time, but um, we're going to catch up. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, uh, Dick Vibro. Thank you very much. Yes, um, we're calling from Auckland, New Zealand, where we are in the future. Uh, but we're sworn to secrecy. We're not allowed to tell people what's going to happen. So I, I can't answer. The only questions I cannot answer about what's going to be happening for you in the next uh, 13 hours. So I apologize. I think that you know a lot more than you want to tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, just don't talk to the head lizard, Phil. That's the only thing I can say. I really shouldn't say any more than that. That's all. Okay. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Good enough. <laughs> let's let's okay. take a different approach. Maybe we'll find out something different. You yeah. are not from New Zealand. You weren't born in New Zealand. You were born in Canada. How did you end up in New Zealand? Uh, so, so my father grew up here in New Zealand and always had a desire to go to the United States. And so when he was 18, he and a buddy, and this would have been the late 60s, and I guess there was a bit of a mindset you could just pick up and do this. And so, so they, they got, uh, they got on the plane and headed over and they landed. And, and as I understand, as the story goes, they showed up and there's a bit of a quota system. So there's a certain number they're going to let in any given year. And, you know, when it comes to New Zealanders, you never know what you're going to get, you know, <laughs> you know, are they Aussie influenced? Because if they are, maybe they shouldn't come in. Um, and so they, uh, they said, Oh, go up to Canada. That's fine. And so my father ended up going to Canada and that's where he met my mother, uh, but always had the desire, uh, to go to the United States. So when I was about nine years old, me and my sister and my mother and, and him, we all went down to New Jersey. But in the initial stages of it, I think that I don't think we were 100% legal at the time because it was a little bit dodgy. So we come over the border. We had like a big Mayflower truck, a big moving truck of all of our stuff. But I think the idea was so we were renting out a place at the time in New Jersey, but we couldn't bring all of our stuff in because maybe that would establish these people have moved here. So the first couple of months, we had this big, it was the biggest home I'd ever even been in. We had this big three story home, but we didn't have any furniture. We didn't have a television. We had nothing. So we were camping in that house in New Jersey for about three months. Yeah, but nobody really, I mean, it's nobody cared about you being, did anybody worry? about what you were doing well, well see the, the advantage of a canadian in the united states is we're like these spies because you never really know you never really know which ones the canadians are all you know is they're much funnier than us why is that <laughs> so that's where you get your william shatner's and your ryan reynolds and all, all these folks uh so no people really didn't know except for the fact that 
you know, I was a shy little kid and I came in and I did sort of pronounce all my words properly a little bit more uh, were, were the Americans like to sort of just kind of chill into their words. And so I, to this day, I, I'll never forget when there was something was being said in the overhead speaker in the school. And I said, Oh, what did they just say on the intercom? And they're like, Ooh, intercom. And it's like, Whoa, Whoa. <laughs> did I say that strange? And they're like, yeah, that's not the intercom. Oh, okay. So drop all those, those healthy syllables out of there and slur. So I had to learn how to speak like a nine-year-old booze hound <laughs> for, for people to think I was okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I picked up on it. You did. But because I was just listening to you, there is one word that I always watch because I'm kind of, I speak six languages and I always try to figure out what language people speak. And there is one word that I recognize Canadians from, and it's the word about, 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 <laughs> because they do. They, yeah. So our O's are a bit different. So you'd pick up on that. And there's some folks up in the United States Midwest that kind of do that. But it's also the cadence of a Canadian too. So they're like, uh, like a boot. You'll sort of hear that O go a bit. But a lot of times when Canadians speak, it's almost like they're asking a question as they're talking to you. So they'll say, so I went down to, uh, I went down to the store and then I was going to get some, some eggs. And it's sort of, a lot of times it ends on the up note. And it's almost as if like the Canadian courtesy of, of like, am I boring you? Is this okay? Is it okay that I'm talking? Should I stop talking? Yeah. <laughs> the kindness yeah. bit. Too kind. <laughs> We're, yeah. Yeah, kind of, well, you know, yeah. it's it's a pretty peaceful place. But I spent uh, grew grew up uh, throughout the United States. A uh, bit of time in Missouri, bit of time in Texas, bit of time uh, most of my time up in Minneapolis, uh, and then from there I got into radio, and then I got into a bit of television. And and my wife and I were looking for a place like our pre-retirement. We're still quite young, but it was like, well, okay, we want to go to Colorado and then eventually we're going to retire sometime in New Zealand. And my wife is much brighter than I. And she was like, well, why, why bother with that? Let's just cut out the middleman and go to New Zealand. So 11 years ago, uh, and since I'm half Kiwi, um, I have what's called citizenship by descent. And it's it's a wee bit tough to actually kind of immigrate uh, uh, here. And so but they had to let me in. I had the paperwork. And so so begrudgingly, they signed. All right, go ahead. You can come. All right, fine. And we've been here for 11 years uh, since. Wow. So because of your being half New, New from New Zealand, they uh, they had to let you in. I have only been to New Zealand once in my life. I used to, I was a tour guide when I was young and I used to do Australia round trips and we had like one once in a while, when we had enough people, we would also visit New Zealand. But I, I actually did New Zealand in one week. So wow. <laughs> you can imagine what that included. And I really, really want to go back because it's a fascinating country. Where about are you based? We are. We live in Auckland, so uh, like on the neck of the North Island. Yeah, uh, where we are right near the top of the country. But I had a similar experience to you, actually, the first time I came because um, I was working in television and I pitched another network. Uh, it was this discovery thing where they were doing a trip of a lifetime and they were looking for people that, uh, you know, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? And so I said, uh, and at that point, I'd never been to New Zealand. And so I pitched them. I wrote them an email about it. And I said, oh, I'd love to go back to the home I've never seen, that sort of thing. And so and they picked up on it. And so they flew me and my daughter and um, my my wife. And we came out to New Zealand. And I, same as you, actually, I spent about 10 days just going up and down the country, uh, baptism by fire, 
and I'm actually um, half Maori, half Maori. And so I ended up going and that's like an Aboriginal here in New Zealand. Yes. <clears throat> and so um, they welcomed me into what's called the Marae and that's um, sort of like their, their home. And I got to try out PowerShell and I got to try out all these different types of foods I meet all these folks, but they also took us around. So we did the bungee jumping. We did the, we did the whitewater rafting and all that stuff. And and it was it was a whirlwind of seven or eight days. Um, I think I slept three four hours a night the entire time, because in part I would just want to wake up. Like I remember being just up north of here, and they put us at this beautiful place right uh, in the Bay of Islands. And I remember getting up before the sun came up because, you know, what an opportunity, right? And so I just wanted to watch the sun come up. And I sat there and it was so amazing. And you've traveled a lot. I mean, part of it, of course, is about the, the beautiful people you meet and the scenery, but it's also about the native wildlife. And I remember sitting there and listening to the birds. And there's a there's a bird here called a tui bird. And it's got this incredible, if you ever have a chance, go to YouTube and listen and type in tu. Uh, T-U-I, Tui Bird, and listen to this thing's call. It's the it's the most fascinating, most complicated call I've ever heard. It's I won't even try and repeat it, but it's this wow, this this crackling sound and these notes that go up and down, and it's fascinating. And I just sort of sat there watching this until a smaller bird came in and chased it away. This tiny little bird scared the heck out of this little Tui. But yeah, so I've really embraced that experience and tried to take in all the sensations I could for the time that I had. And it was another 10 years after that, that I finally was able to move here. You know, you, you mentioned one word because I was, of course, listening to everything you said, but you mentioned the word bungee jumping. And when I was in New Zealand, I think it was the first people who jumped off a bridge in Queenstown. And I um, I went there. I, I was there. I had to go there with my tour group. And I thought, what on earth are these people doing? You know, like right. this is this is this is insane. And now, in the meantime, I'm talking about. I think it was 1989, maybe 88, 89. And in the meantime, every person in the world jumps off some kind of bridge or some kind of thing. But it was invented in Queenstown, in in New Zealand. Yeah, it was AJ Hackett was the guy who, who sort of um, commercialized it, and he had taken it from, I believe, inspired by some. Uh, I'm going to get some of the history of this messed up, but they were basically, there was a part of Africa, I believe, and they would tie vines around their ankles and they would do this and then they would dive into the waters to be able to grab something like a particular shell or something. And so he had seen some of that and thought, that looks like fun, <laughs> except for the part where there's all that injury. And so he came up with this whole bungee idea uh, so that, because you go when you go up to the bungee jumping, you give them your weight. And so they can calculate down to just within, you know, a half meter of when you go over the side and how far you're going to go. And they know exactly, you know, do you want to touch the water through your fingertips? Do you want to dip into the water? So they're real precise about it. And they're, they're real protective of making sure all those safety measures are in place because it's real bad for tourism if somebody splats in the wrong way. So you think this is probably one of the few places where people actually tell the truth about their weight? Oh, uh, you have, yeah. Exactly. Well, <laughs> you know what's so funny? You mentioned so you mentioned that because <laughs> you you might tell the truth, but this is totally true. When when my 
my daughter wanted to go, right? She was nine or 10 at the time. And she was all brave. Oh, I'm going to do this by myself. And so I'm doing this by myself. And so I'd gone up and, and I'd done my job. And then and she got to the top and her, her eyes were like, I don't do this by myself. I don't do it by this. I don't do it. And so, so she was like, okay, well, let's have dad go with her. And so it was funny because so they gave, we give her, we give them her weight. And of course, we had to convert from our pounds we were used to into kilograms and then give them my weight because I had that. And as I'm walking along, I realized like, because he said, oh, combined weight of this. And as we're walking, my head's going, something about that number doesn't click. <laughs> and I realized that they hadn't added it up correctly. <laughs> so, so maybe you want to check the math as you go. Cause I said, Hey, listen, you sure that's, you sure that's right? Cause I don't want to get a bizarre surprise because if it's not quite right, you just, it's fine, but you'll get dunked in that water and that Queenstown water could be kind of cold. Yes. But it, it was, it was, or there could be a rock or there could be something else. So you don't really it's know. Pretty, it's, it's pretty safe. It's pretty safe. And I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but um, because of the radio days of, of, uh, you know, done hang gliding, uh, I've jumped out of airplanes and all these things. And again, I'm not somebody who loves that thrill, but I do love, and there's a lot about this in life or in, in bungee jumping or any of it, but I like that moment between this normal world here, me standing on this plank and then me in this falling state. That's interesting too. It's fine. But it's the same thing with like bungee or jumping out of an airplane, um, like parachuting, which I've done a couple of times, like I mentioned for radio. I, uh, those two states I get is that interim between the two where you're transitioning from, from standing like at the door of a plane to then falling. And that I find that fascinating, that little two or three seconds where your brain goes, I don't know what to do with this. This is this transition spot between these two states I understand. That transition is fascinating to me where your brain sort of locks up and goes, this is really queer, this moment, this choice to do something that's a bad idea. Why are we here? And so if if I were not an adrenaline junkie, but if I were somebody who kind of liked something unusual, it's that it's that place in your brain where you go, I this is so unfamiliar. I don't even know where to put this in my mind. And so I guess I do sort of seek those moments out a bit. That's an extreme version of it, that transition between standing on the plane or standing on the plank and then ending up being in that next state. But that transition always fascinates me. So anytime I can kind of find that place where my brain doesn't exactly know what to do with it, I'm really fascinated to get there. Yeah, but you know, don't you think that this is exactly the place where we should be? Like, like, don't we spend, we don't spend enough time there, that moment where we think, what could be, what could we do? Because as long as we just follow the um, ordinary route, the, 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 the things that you were saying before, nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to be different. But but if you actually go there, what you were saying, you think, well, let's try this. Let's find out what let's find out what happens there. What what will happen? It's a scary thing, right? It's it's so unknown to you. And I agree with you. Those moments that you take a leap of faith, sometimes literally in that case, but when you take that bad little sort of leap of faith and try something out that you're not comfortable with. And if you were traveling, there's always going to be some risk, whatever you might do, but some small version that comes to mind when I was here, um, I needed to get a motorcycle um, to travel around the country because we because it's difficult to park in Auckland. It's extremely expensive to park in Auckland. And so I knew I needed to get a motorcycle. And so I was going to take 
um, a bus up north, then catch another sort of shuttle bus to get me to the West Coast to, I think it was a place called Raglan. That's not quite right. But anyways, and so I got up there. It was a couple of hours up from Hamilton where we were staying. And when I got to the spot where sort of the shuttle was supposed to take us, it was like, hey, that's not running today. What? That's not that's not running today. Well, how am I supposed to get there? Like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, but I'm in the middle of nowhere. What am I supposed to do? And so the only thing that came to mind, I'd never done it in my life. I'd never even considered it my entire life. I hitchhiked for the first wow. time in my entire life. And I'd never, but there was that part of me that said like, well, this is the only option. It terrifies the idea of me on so many levels. Being a Canadian, we the most important thing about a Canadian is we never like to put anybody out. That That is the one thing that is abhorrent to Canadians. And so my idea of like, please stop for me and, and help me get to where I need to go. And so, so, and also the, you know, also the fears of somebody you don't know. And so in that, that was sort of an unusual moment. And this lovely man stopped, he was towing a boat. And so we talked about his boat all the way along and, uh, and it was an amazing experience. So I agree with you. If, especially when you're out traveling out and about, if you see something strange or if there's a moment that doesn't quite work out for you, I don't know how many times that I've been somewhere uh, on vacation somewhere and the booking you, we went to make didn't quite pan out or something didn't play the way we wanted to. And I would say that 90% of the time, the thing that we turned to instead was better than the thing we originally mm -hmm. planned. Yeah. And so you just take that leap of faith and and just go with the flow. Absolutely. And I think we don't do that enough. I think we just are so very often just so predictable and we are afraid of, of you know, in so many ways, whether it's not knowing about it could be racism or it could be so many other things. But instead of just understanding that we all want to be safe, we don't want to do harm to to each other. So um, I think we could have a lot of a lot more fun together if we just went with the flow. But um, that's a very, very different podcast. I think that's not something. <laughs> that's a different story. I want to talk about your books and how did you start writing? And you have you have written a lot of books. I was stalking you on uh, social media and on on, on the the web. How did you start writing, and how many have you written? Oh, I've read, I've, I've got two series right now on Amazon. Um, one is the Helling series. There's eight out of those nine books. I've got the, my new series, which is Kane. Um, and there's probably going to be four or five of those. The third book comes out here in the next couple of weeks. But I got into writing, like I mentioned, when we came from, uh, Canada to New Jersey, I was a shy kid. I was a, I was a chubby little nine-year-old with a Canadian accent. You know, I was <laughs> I was somebody who wasn't was nervous about being around other folks. And Americans are some of the most gregarious and interesting and just free people. And I was more. And the Canadians are are also that, but also have a little bit of that British sort of you know a little bit more closed off. And so naturally an introvert, but also quite shy. And so that writing was a way for me to escape into that. Because if you don't really, if you don't really love the world you're in, how great is it to create one world that you can be in, right? And so I started creating these worlds um, and these in these characters, which became my friends to some extent. And so that's how I got started on that. And as I got older and older, I realized just sort of the power of words and the power of humor and these sort of things. And so when I got older, I tried to get published 
like in magazines for short stories, um, and then even writing a few really terrible books, <laughs> which I didn't get published. But I, I got I was a real big fan of comedy. And so what I started doing is writing bits, writing jokes, and writing little stories, storytelling. And I found that the the best way for me to get published, even though I had no desire to be on stage as a stand-up comedian, I really didn't have a great desire to have spotlights on me, but I could write something that afternoon and that night I could be published because I'd get up on stage and tell my story to you and people would respond to that and they would kind of like pour that love back to you. And so I've always used writing uh, through, through stand-up comedy and then radio and then into television. And now I've come full circle in the last couple of years and now doing that as full-time writing. But I've always had that great desire, that great interest in, in, in understanding how words can elicit emotions out of people or humor. You know, mm-hmm. humor is such a is such a voodoo, and it's it's really difficult to do. And I think that's why I really enjoy it because it's really hard to kind of put your finger on what's really funny or how to make people laugh. But there's such a joy for me for somebody to contact me, reach out to me, and say, "Oh, this made me book laugh, uh, book made me laugh out loud." Or I'll see a review. Somebody says something like, "I can't read this at work anymore because people keep turning around and looking at me, <laughs> wondering why I'm laughing to myself." So the writing really came from really being a shy little kid trying to find some way to find a world that I could feel more safe and find characters that I could sort of get lost with. And now I get to share all those strange little characters in my head with other people. Amazing. But, um, you know, I'm just thinking about um, what you were saying before about humor. How important is it really to, because personally in, in my life and in my world, I think humor is one of the most important things. It's, 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 it's connecting people. It's, it's, um, even in a very difficult situation, in a very difficult moment of life, you can have a laugh. How do you define humor or, or, or how do you use humor? Because personally, I think it really, really is important. Do you think that too? Yeah, uh, to use humor, even outside of of the writing side of it, uh, humor has got me out of a lot of scrapes. <laughs> there is power in humor. There's such power in humor. Like And like I mentioned, I was a bit of a new kid and developing my sense of humor. But when you get into a situation where, let's say you've got some tough that's kind of giving you a hard time and, and you know, and is looking to challenge you. If you can, if you can find a way, and it is a delicate balance, and you know, you, you can learn that the hard way, but if you can find a way to get the other person to laugh, it not only diffuses the situation, but there's a power shift. The moment they're laughing at what you're saying, I'm not saying you're in control, but you're pulling power away from them. And, and they're glad to give it to you because humor is fun. It's a fun moment. And so humor has an amazing way of, of of giving you some control over the scenario. But it's also like when I was growing up, I had a Kiwi father in, in New Zealand. Older New Zealand men aren't known to pour out affection. And so the affection that I got from my father was making him laugh. And so that was the love that I was getting from him. And you could see on his face that sometimes he didn't want to laugh, but he, he, he couldn't help it. And that was such an affirmation for me. 
Um, but I also, but when humor itself, I find the reason why humor works is because it's, it's a veracity, there's a veracity to it. There's a truth to it. You know, that idea about, you know, somebody looking for the glasses can find them anywhere. And then somebody says, they're on your head. That's, that's funny. That's because we all can understand that. So humor is, is a truth. It's a universal truth that that's why we find that thing funny. That's why we all relate to it. And it, a lot of times it doesn't matter the language you speak or even many times, even the culture you grow up in, things are naturally funny because of the truth behind it. And I think there's a wonderful, pure thing about that with humor. And that's one of the main reasons I love it so much. Yeah, because um, it doesn't really need any translation because we all kind of laugh about the same things, don't we? As you said, you know, like looking for the glasses and they're on your head and so, so yeah. many other things. Yeah, I think if we started laughing about ourselves a little more, not about other people, because that's always difficult, you know, that creates problems and and, and misunderstandings. But I think if we stopped taking ourselves a little bit less serious. We would have a lot more fun in this world. But um, I want to take you serious, and I still haven't spoken about how many books you've written. So how many books have yeah, you written? And I th I think it's 13. I've got got up on Amazon right now, 13 different. And they're, it's funny because some people will define what I write to some extent, or you have to be defined, right? You need to be, especially if you're marketing yourself. So the stuff that I write is sort of supernatural, but I myself am not a huge, huge fan of supernatural. I like science fiction and some of that. Um, but so my books, basically what my books are is they're, they're fun or thriller type stories, but there's about 5% of it that is a little bit magical right and and that's all there really is it's not that i go like i really love fantasy worlds and all that i don't necessarily but i like this sort of this implication that even in our own world that maybe there's a little bit of magic here that we don't quite understand there's stuff going around under the surface um that that's a little bit special that we we, we see glimpses of every now and then and so that's what my stories are um and the the, the series i'm writing right now with kane uh, and I, and in describing it, it sounds ultimately goofy. Basically, it's a reverse werewolf story. And I say this by saying, I'm, I don't know if, if I, I might be the first time I've ever said it. I don't know if I've ever read a werewolf book in my entire life. I really haven't. I'm not drawn to them, but the idea of it really fascinated me for a couple of reasons. So basically, uh, <laughs> Kane is a wolf up in the British, up in British Columbia. And he gets bitten by this infected man. And there's a story behind this. And so there's, he's a, this soldier that has a virus going through him, this engineered virus. And so when Kane the wolf wakes up and recovers from that the next day, he turns into a teenage boy. He's a human. And over the next year, he becomes fully grown into a man, uh, a six foot seven French Canadian. And that idea fascinated me, you know, this idea of spinning it around. And so the fun of the story is in part because he meets up with this uh, young girl whose name is Imelda, and she's a part-time criminal. She you know, doesn't do it full-time, but she's she'd always been the getaway driver. And so one of the things Kane, going from wolf to human, can't quite work out. He, he actually speaks French and English, but he can't quite work out certain things like reading doesn't quite make sense to his wolf mind, and neither does driving. So she becomes his driver, and they become sort of this partnership through these, this series as he tries to find out the secret behind what has come into his bloodstream because he wants to return and go back and become a wolf again. He wants to go back to those days where he could run around naked through the forest. 
I mean, he could run around naked through the forest, I guess, but he'd probably get incarcerated so, <laughs> as a human. And so this story is about that. And, and there's a lot of fun. A lot of people really seem to enjoy within these stories is I, you know, like I was talking about some, you know, truth and veracity and humor. Kane, we get to see Kane, we get to see humans and our behavior through his eyes. And so there are chapters that are, are is spoken through Kane's voice as he observes humans around him and how they interact and how he's his naivety as he sees what we do and how silly it seems. And when you step back to some extent and you take a look at what he's observing, you kind of do go, yeah, this is kind of dumb that we do that, isn't it? <laughs> and so those are kind of fun. So I get to take a look and kind of poke fun at some of the things humans do and how they interact and the things that we we're interested interested in through through that lens um, with Kane. And there's a lot of fun little bits of it, you know, um, being somebody who likes to break things in a way. So there's all these tropes with the werewolf world and that sort of thing. So he does change with the full moon. He changes into this powerful monster, but. But I was thinking, and I had never seen this before, but I was thinking, why is it always just the full moon that he changes? What about different moon phases, right? And so Cain, the human, turns into this sort of wolfware, werewolf with a full moon. But what if it was a half moon? What if it was a quarter moon? What if it was a sliver? Maybe he was a lesser kind of werewolf. And the answer to that would be, well, then he would be a dog. So if there is a half moon, he turns into like a pug. If there's a quarter moon, he might turn into a chihuahua. And so uh, he avoids the moonlight as much as he can. But of course, as these stories go, there's moments where he steps out and suddenly he turns into these various dogs when he goes, uh, when he gets into the moonlight. So there's a lot of fun in that story um, to be able to um, to change him into these fun little creatures uh, who are in themselves little heroes, you know? And and the one last thing I'll say about it, which I really started to enjoy, and this comes from writing where the characters start to speak to you, which I love. That's the, my favorite part of writing, where you can design something and say, this needs to go here, this needs to go here. But if you do it right, or if you just maybe stumble into it like I do, eventually the characters start to tell you what they're thinking. They start to tell you what they want to do. And the fun part that kind of started to develop as I was writing the first and then the second book was that every time he turns into one of these particular dogs, and all dogs have different personalities, might be excitable, they might be loving, whatever it might be, some of that personality of those dogs begins to change who he is. So the attributes of those dogs he turns into starts to affect his personality, starts to affect how he views the world. And so he grows and changes every time he turns to another one of these animals. You know, he turns to a golden retriever at one point in, in the second book, which are some of the most loving creatures on the planet. And so he's always been this alpha wolf, powerful creature, predator. And now he's got more empathy and sympathy for people that he didn't ask for. But now it's in him because at one point he was this golden retriever. And so so that's been really fun. That's been really fun to do through it. And people really seem for us. I know how silly it sounds, but uh, people really seem to enjoy how much um, how much fun it is to kind of explore these parts of his personality. I, yeah, I, I totally understand because we all kind of want to find out all these different things. now. Coming away from that, I read somewhere, I, I am not sure if you mentioned it before, but you are suffering from a thing called narcolepsy. What narcolepsy, is, yeah. Well, narcolepsy. What is it? So narcolepsy is when you're tired all the time. Okay. Uh, narcolepsy is 
they don't entirely understand all the bits and pieces, but basically it's an autoimmune disorder where your body attacks a hypocritin in your body. And um, so that means, and hypocrite is something that regulates sleep. So if I go and lie down for eight hours, which I haven't done since I was probably 20 years old, but if I sit and try and sleep for eight hours, I'll wake up four, five, six times because um, I don't have enough hip, hypocrite in my, seat, uh, in my system. And my, it, that's what regulates your sleep. And so I keep coming out of it. So I could lie down for 20 hours. I've never done that. But if I lie down and try to sleep for 20 hours, I would still wake up and be tired because I don't get that recuperative sleep because of the narcolepsy. But I actually, and I've said this before, that has been something that the challenge, when I was younger, I used to get teased by my Kiwi father. Oh, he's having another growth spurt again, which was funny because I'm not even five foot eight. <laughs> so that growth spurt <laughs> thing wasn't happening. But <clears throat> there was, when I finally discovered, and it was an odd moment when I actually discovered I had narcolepsy, um, when I finally could put a name on it and say, this is the thing, this is this thing you have. And somebody described it to me once, and I have no frame of reference, but somebody described it to me once. For somebody who doesn't have narcolepsy, stay up for 30 hours, now go to work. And then now when you come home, now make dinner and now deal with the kids. And that's what narcolepsy feels like. And I don't I don't know what that would be like for you, but I do know that even speaking to you now, I have to make sure I'm laser focused in my head because otherwise I'll drift off into another place. But as I say that, as I say that, where that felt like a bit of a, a crippling thing when I was a bit younger, I started to realize that this for me, and I sincerely mean this, this for me is a superpower. Because you know when you're lying down going to sleep, those last couple minutes and your mind starts to wander as you're falling asleep and you come up with these amazing ideas and you say to yourself, oh, that's really good. I'm gonna, I should write that down. No, I won't write that down. I'll remember that in the morning and then, and then you don't remember that in the morning. So that state, I'm in that state for about 80% of my day, that sort of wandering mind sort of state. And that is where I create. And that's where I come up with stories and ideas and characters and dialogue. And so there was a time where it was, I will be honest, it kind of frustrated me and even angered me that I had this thing. But now I, I love it. It, it. I don't love the idea of being tired all the time, but I love being able to be in a place where my mind can go into places where a lot of other people are more awake and they have governors that say, don't take your mind there. That's a crazy place. If you keep on going to a place like that, you'll come up with an idea of, of a reverse werewolf. <laughs> so I actually am fine with the narcolepsy now. It helps me create. And I'm, and I would actually almost say I'm happy to have it. It gave me a, a, an interesting sort of career. Isn't that amazing though, that um, you're looking at it as a gift that helps you yeah with what you do. And I think there are so many things in our lives that we could either take as a burden or we can take it as a gift. And I think that's really what life is all about. Life is all about our choices and our life is the result of all our choices. And the way you're looking at it is um, helping you write good books, helping you entertain people, helping you, you know, add uh, value to the world. I am looking at the time and I see that we are already coming towards the end and it's called Most Memorable Journeys. What's coming yeah. up for Dick Wybro? What's 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 next? What's the future? Do you want to, when it comes to journeys, you want travel-wise? Generally, or? Tra anything. Travel, life, um, fun. Let's let's keep it to, to, to travel since we talk a bit about travel. I would yeah. love to return to uh, Japan. When I was in radio, um, I got a chance to go to the Nagano Olympics 
uh, not to compete, not with the body like this, <laughs> but I broadcast from the Nagano Olympics and I spent um, about a week and a half in uh, Nagano and Matsumoto City in various places around there. And what an amazing country. What a beautiful group of people. It, it was, I'd never experienced anything like that. It was so, everybody was so kind and it was just, and they, they really, and I've heard stories about how, is it Ganju? I can't remember how they don't like foreigners. Some folks, I mean, a lot of places have trouble with foreigners. I never experienced any of that. The people were great. The history of a place like that is beautiful. We ended up going, I think it was Matsumoto City. Uh, at least close to that, we ended up going to this old temple. And I wrote about this in in, in one of my series, uh, where you went into the temple, you, went, you had to take your shoes off, you went inside. And, you know, in America, there's if this had been in America, there there would have been a gift shop there. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you could have gotten keychains. But this was just, this is exactly how it looked, I, I expected, from a thousand years earlier or however long it would have been. And there was this neat thing where, so you went inside and you took a look and it was quiet and serene. And then there was sort of this back area where it's completely pitch black. And the idea was you go back there and you walk through there and you run your hands along the wall. And if you can find, and I might be getting this wrong, if you can find the little hidden Buddha is what it was. There's like this little figurine on the wall somewhere and you run your hands up and, and you wouldn't necessarily find it. It wasn't easy. You run your hands up and down the wall as you went. And even if you didn't find it, it was just the experience of going through. But what a thrill, you know, when my little fingertips came across this little little bulge down there in the wall and I was like, yeah, I found it, I found it. And so there was all these neat little things walking up and down the streets. I remember same thing uh, uh, we were talking about earlier. I remember getting up really early and 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 just trying to experience the city. And it, there was this light dusting of snow um, from uh, the day before. And it was beautiful it was serene you would walk down these little alleyways and and there were restaurants but they were restaurants with one or two tables it, it, it wasn't like a restaurant i was familiar with this was a business that somebody had on the side and they had two tables you could only seat four you know four six people in the entire quote-unquote restaurant and they were they were very sweet and and then when i would say oh i don't know what all these things are they were very kind about helping me pick something out it was a serene, lovely experience that I would love to take my wife there and experience once again. A beautiful, beautiful place. Wow. Yes. You know, it's so funny because I've been doing quite a few recordings lately and every time that, uh, that Japan comes up and I haven't really actually visited properly myself and I think it's really a sign that I need to go there. But for the time being, we are going to post your um, links to your books. We're going to post the links to your website. And I really, really want to thank you for spending time with me on Most Memorable Journeys. And uh, any last words? My last words are thank you to you, Elizabeth, and thank you to your listeners for listening to my stories. I appreciate it very much. And I've really, really enjoyed listening to you. And um, let's be in touch and maybe do more in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. And anytime you come to New Zealand, you got a place. Come on by. Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, um, it's it's somehow in my plans. But yeah, you know, so many things to do. I would love to yep. come back to New Zealand. I had a beautiful time. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.